So we spent a year driving around Peru in a borrowed Jeep, writing this guidebook. That was definitely life-changing and in the end kind of career-changing as well. Hi. Hello. 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 Hello and welcome to Architecting. This is a podcast about the lives of architects. About the people and stories behind the buildings that we see around us and the images that brought them to life. And with the very international world that we live in. This show will purposefully be local and narrow. Only focusing on the Colorado community of designers. Hi, I'm Adam Wagner. I'm the host of this show. I'm an architect who's worked for a dozen different firms in three different countries. But for the last five years, I've been rooted in Denver, Colorado, where I'm at Open Studio Architecture, and I teach at the University of Colorado, Denver. I like connecting with other designers and learning from their experiences. So now I'm broadcasting these conversations with the goal of creating a stronger local community here in Colorado. And that brings us to our guest today, Rene Delgadio, the sole employee of Rene Delgadio Architecture. I've been a uh, big fan of Renee's work uh, since I moved here to Colorado. Um, she she purposely works on few projects at a time and, and stays very small. But this unique business model um, allows her to create extremely strong work that she can be proud of. Her work has gained her many AIA design and firm of the year awards, as well as write-ups in Dwell, Modern Denver, 5280, and the Wall Street Journal. I'd really been looking forward to talking to Renee for, for a while. And the thing that really came across for me is her, her drive and her, her vision. It seems like she's, she's really someone who knows what she wants and, and knows how to get there. So from, from her life in, in Michigan to Colorado to Washington to California to Peru and then back to Colorado, she developed a vision, uh, a, a mission uh, to create an authentic architecture uniquely for our state. Like some of the work that she was seeing in the, the Pacific Northwest from firms like Miller Hall, Olson Kundig, and others, that was that was really deeply rooted in that unique place. She wanted to come and do that here in Colorado. So has she has she accomplished this goal? Well, check out the interview and see what she thinks. Hope you enjoy. So our goal at Architecting is to help connect Colorado designers. And nobody is already doing this better than Modern in Denver. For over a decade, Modern in Denver has been striving to bring architects together and to educate the public about what good design can be and can accomplish. I'm very excited to be working together with them now on this shared goal. So over the years, they have constantly created fantastically curated stories about Colorado designers and projects and work to connect the profession with live local events. So go out now, buy a copy of their new print issue, subscribe to their weekly email list, and follow them on Instagram. This is this is one of the best looking backgrounds I think we've had. Uh, <laughs> you did your background. There's there's a real there's a real art to that, right? Especially this is now. where it happens. <laughs> this is the shop. Where are you at? So, 
What kind of, what kind of space are you in? I have a home office. Um, yeah, just a tiny little corner in my house that I've been working out of for 10 years. Oh, nice. Yeah, so this whole COVID thing was no no big deal for you. You were you were already used to it and set up and no change whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Same same same. Uh, cool. Well, how's your Friday been going? Pretty good. Um Yeah, my my um my family's been gone all week. They just got back last night. So I've had a very kind of unusual week of cranking on work with no distractions <laughs> who gets to do that Su ever super productive yeah super off the charts nice how, how many kids do you have i've got two teenagers Ooh. yeah one um just finished my oldest sebastian just finished his first year of high school and my youngest right behind him he's 15 she's 14 she's starting high school this year wow so, you're you're, you're the big expert i i've got a four and a half year old and a one and a half year old and and to Ooh, me to me like to me like six to, to me like <laughs> six year olds are so advanced and old you know uh yeah i look at my son and i'm like i can understand everything you're saying i don't know how how it gets any more advanced than this you know uh, <laughs> <laughs> what? so i i couldn't even yeah, I couldn't fathom a uh, 15 year old. Uh, but... Yeah, it's pretty different than one in four. But <laughs> <laughs> well, where are you? Are you in a trying to understand your background? Yeah, you know, I'm in a uh, our our pantry and our coat closet. That's now my my studio in my podcast studio, and so it's it's literally yeah, architecture model in your pantry. Yeah, no. that's it. Yep. So I set up <laughs> I've set up my models and my background here, so it gives me something. But Fabulous. I'm looking at now, and I I moved my shelves, and so you can I haven't patched the holes yet. Uh, yeah. So I need to, but I had I had some like models that my son made up there too, but he made me take them down. He, he wanted them somewhere else, <laughs> but his, it was like a little model of a spider he made. Um, yeah, awesome. but this works well enough. Uh, you know, my, my wife's an architect and she's just working outside there. And so sometimes the sound, we have to really control it. And one time we had to put our son's mattress up against the door cause we both had things at the same time. And <laughs> oh, yeah, but it worked. Well, cool. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, you know, you're you're one of the one of the first people I wanted to reach out to. You're you're like this mysterious person I wanted to know about more about and making this awesome work. And uh, had to keep keep trying to pester you and bug you. To, but thanks for coming on. Well, here I am. I love what you're doing, Adam. Seriously, it's super cool what you're doing. Um, I remember. Once in a while, I listen to um, the Designed pod podcast. Mm, yeah, and friends, and I remember thinking, wouldn't it be awesome if someone <laughs> locally did this for Colorado? And here you are. There we go. Doing it. Nice. It's awesome. Yeah, I love it. I mean, I mean, I applaud you. It's a lot of work, I'm sure. So good on you for taking on this challenge. Yeah. Well, thanks. You know, it's a lot of fun and, and just, especially in this time, being able to connect with people and, uh, 
you know, when I first moved to Denver, I had a real excuse to reach out to people and try to get a job. But then I got a job and there wasn't as much excuse. And I really just enjoyed that networking. And and then I would I, I teach it to you. And so I invite people in for juries and things. And that was fun. But it was like, how can I how can I do this more and, and really kind of help help spread that and connect people? And so, yeah, this is it's work, but it's just been a lot of fun um, to do. So, yeah. So you teach it to you as well. That's fantastic. Good for you. A little bit, yeah. You're busy. Jeez. Yeah, I'm just <laughs> just working away in my my pantry here. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, well, cool. Well, let's let's dive in a little bit. I I'm I'm always interested in this sort of question and see how people answer it for themselves. But who who are you? In in like two sentences, what what who would you say you are? Professionally or personally? <laughs> That's the fun is to see how, how people answer it, you know? Uh, oh, man. I've, okay. I've gotten the one word answer from like Chad Mitchell where he just said, I'm an architect. Or we have, you know, whole five minute long things. So. All right. Well, let's see. Professionally, I, um, two sentences. I'm a one woman shop. Mm. And my work is a constant search for an authentic architecture for this place, for Mm. the Rocky Mountain region. I'd say that's my two line, two line bio professionally. Nice. I like that one. Nice and clean. Um, So how, how'd you get here? How'd you, how'd you get to that point? Where, where'd you grow up? I grew up um, outside of Detroit hmm. um, in Michigan. Uh, my my father worked for Ford Motor Company for 25 years. Hmm. Um, so we grew up in a suburb outside of Detroit. Um, you know, I'm the, I'm the only architect in my family. I, there's no other architects, but my, my grandmother on my father's side was super artistic. She, um, she was an artist. She was, um, you know, in that, in the, in the forties at the Cranbrook Institute. Hmm. Are you familiar with Cranbrook? Yeah, definitely. So, uh, I don't know if she, I wouldn't say she hung out with these people, but she was definitely influenced by these architects. Saarinen and Kahn and Ray and Charles Eames were all, you know, teaching or, you know, designing at Cranbrook and she, that was her era. And she was a weaver. She um, did these incredible weavings that were in the Detroit Institute of Art. She was a metalsmith. She was a, she um, worked with silver and gold. She, um, she did these incredible charcoal drawings, watercolor. She's just uh, multi-talented. Um, so that was my dad's side, you know, and, and she and my grandfather in the forties owned a, a Scandinavian, um, furniture and houseware shop in Birmingham. Hmm. So we, you know, I grew up in this super simple house, but we had Barcelona chairs <sighs> in the living room and Vasily chairs <sighs> and, and Wagner furniture. And so I grew up with that, you know, that vein of modernism, wow. um, but yeah, the only, only one ever interested in architecture. I went to university of Michigan 
um, for architecture or no, I did not study architecture at university of Michigan. I thought about it and I, um, I prepared myself for it. I took all the prerequisites, you know, the physics and the maths and the drawing courses, but I never ended up applying. Um, I think I just wasn't ready, Hmm. you know, pretty young. Um, so yeah, so I didn't study architecture in undergrad. What'd you study? I had a pretty broad liberal arts degree. I majored in sociology and business. Um, but always had architecture in the back of my mind for sure. Hmm. And, and, and that mostly kind of came from your grandmother or just in general, that interest in architecture? You know, who knows where it originally came from. I think, you know, the pretty typical answer of being strong in maths and loving to draw, loving to build things, using my hands. It definitely felt like my path early on. I actually, I remember in high school, um, my dad helping me set up a, like a, a visit, um, or spent a week during the summer at an architect's office. It was always mm-hmm. on my mind. Um, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't really, really start focusing on it until grad school. Um, later on, like, um, when I was 24, I didn't go to grad school till I was 24. Mm. So. And, and so what was that like? So you got out of, you got out of Michigan which is a, a really great architecture school, right? Uh, exactly. And, <laughs> yeah. And, and, yeah. and, uh, and I'd say a little bit different than Washington, right? Uh, architecture maybe wise. Uh, and so you, you graduated and, and did you go right into grad school from there? Or how so, was that path to get to Washington? You know, within like days of graduating Michigan, um, I discovered Colorado. I had a boyfriend whose sister was going um, um, to be a freshman at Colorado. Um, And so we, um, about five of our friends, we all piled into a car and drove out to Colorado from Michigan. And none of us ever came back. (laughs) We just absolutely were blown away. We fell in love. And um, we all just lived there for about, three years just exploring the mountains. I mean, coming from Michigan, exploring the Colorado, Colorado mountains was mind blowing, just absolutely mind blowing. So spent about three years just, um, you know, working, but really exploring and, um, discovering Colorado. And then, and then I was ready to apply to architecture school, Mm. you know, like I just, I got that out of my system. I was ready and I knew I wanted to stay in the West So I only applied to schools in the West. I applied to three-year programs, you know, starting from scratch, really. Applied to three-year programs, and I went up to visit Seattle and absolutely fell in love with Seattle. Totally blown away. Captivated by the Pacific Northwest in every way. Um, So, yeah, so I moved up to Seattle and um, really focused on architecture, like, full out, no distractions, just became very serious about it very quickly. Um, and had an absolutely incredible experience up there. I mean, studying architecture up there has made a huge impact on what I do today. Absolutely. How would you, what would you say, 
what was the kind of idea or sense around the school at that time? And kind of what did you get from it? You know, it, I specifically picked Seattle because of not only being in Seattle, which I was very interested in being in Seattle, um, but I picked it for its design build program. Hmm. There were not that I mean, when I, and that was, um, at that time, there were not that many design build programs and the design build program at the university of Washington was very strong. And, um, that's why I picked it a huge part. Uh, it was led by Sergio Palleroni and Steve Bedanes, mm. who were kind of the Kings of design build at that time. Still, I mean, still are in a way they were, you know, that was the same era as like Samuel Mockby, mm-hmm. but Steve Bedanes started Jersey devil up in Vermont, like way before that. So they were just killing it. They took us to Cuba. They took us to mm. rural Mexico. They had a program in India. I mean, they were just doing incredible things all over the world. And I really wanted to be a part of that. Um, but beyond the design build program, there was a huge influence. Well, one of my first professors, Peter Cohan, um, taught me all about Scandinavian architecture. He took us down to Alto's library outside of Portland, Oregon. He um, taught us all about Sphere Fun. Um, He was so good about getting us out of the studio. He took us up um, to Vancouver Island so we could study the Patco Library, Mm. Strawberry Vale up there. into the city of Vancouver to see some private residences by the Pat Cows. He took us all over Seattle to see, um, it wasn't Olson Kundig at that time, it was Olson Sundberg. And mm. Olson Sundberg's projects, he took us into inside um, a ton of their projects. Um, and you know, I Actually, beyond those three professors, I'll add another one, Dave Miller of Miller Hall Partnership. Mm, nice. He was my um, second year studio professor and my one of my thesis professors. He made a huge impact on me. God, talk about, you know, placemaking and regional architecture. I just, I think he is incredible. Um, I learned everything I know about regional architecture placemaking. I feel like I learned from Dave Miller. Hmm. Um, so it was just an incredible staff of professors. Um, you know, we would have crits with James Cutler. Hmm. Um, it's a real community up there. Um, a really strong connection between, um, working architects and professors, um, there's a lot of overlap. Um, all of my professors, most of my professors also had practices. Um, so there's a real crossover and a real strong connection between students and offices. And it was an awesome experience. Yeah. It seems like a really interesting place where almost more than anywhere else, just this kind of identity of themselves that there's a, a group like you're talking about that, that's doing really phenomenal work and obviously they have their own kind of directions with it, but it does kind of feel like it's tied together. Um, just that sense of place and 
maybe material, I guess, but yeah. I, th I think the regional architecture up in the Pacific Northwest is the strongest regional architecture in our country. I mean, it might not have the longest history, mm -hmm. but the way uh, people up there respond to the light or maybe the lack of light, you know, for many months of the year um, to the natural landscape up there, I, I just think it's phenomenal. Yeah. It made such an impression on me. Hmm. So that design build program, was that just, was that one of the three years or just one semester or how? It was all woven throughout. Um, there was one um, whole semester where we spent, um, first we started in Cuba hmm. um, and we um, designed a, like a, like a food co-op for rural farmers, a place for rural farmers to sell their food. And then we moved from there to a rural area outside of Cuernavaca, Mexico. Wow. And built um, a library. Uh, just, you know, landed on the I don't know if you have a lot of experience with design build, but literally landed on the ground and designed and built this project almost to completion within, you know, a matter. It, it was less than 16 weeks, I think. Wow. Hmm. Um, that was that was an awesome experience just and and looking back i have to wonder if steve and sergio didn't have a plan before we <laughs> landed on the ground you know like i think they had a way of making us think that we thoroughly designed those projects from scratch but i think they probably were like coaching us a certain way and had some kind of plan before we got there but yeah that sounds terrifying <laughs> not that fast without a without a plan uh, yeah but well, so, i mean it's so many things could go wrong you can't even imagine how many things could go wrong but we did it so oh, was, we were so proud of that building we built a a curved roof that's pulled the hot air up and out of the building on the high side um, with a water cistern on the low side, so the evaporative cooling effect mm. essentially happened. Um, you know, we built out of brick, of course, because that's what was locally available, and that's what people were good at in that village. We, you know, got villagers to come help us, and uh, it was an amazing experience. We learned to weld. We welded a steel door for the entry. Um, I mean... Yeah. No, learning construction in architecture school, I think, is invaluable. Mm -hmm. I love what Rick Sommerfeld is doing um, in Denver with those kids. I mean, that's game changing for Denver. Yeah. Just that, that experience. And such high, just, such high quality. Yeah. And, and, um, and the amount of students that are being pumped through there. Yeah. Seems like it's really doing well for the profession and he, he, locally, you know. Um. Absolutely, Th that those experiences stay with you. You know, they really, really do. They they teach you how to think about connecting to a local place because of, out of no choice, you you know you you have materials only available to you. What is there? You're not importing anything you have local tradesmen you're not bringing anyone in from the outside you're you know you're essentially 
looking at the vernacular architecture of, of that place and trying to do it in a modern way quickly and efficiently and affordably, you know, it's just, it's so many lessons from that design build experience. Um, but yeah, at that, at that time, when I went to school, there were not that many really well-developed design build programs. So that was a huge part of going to UW. And, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, Michigan was such a great architecture program, but they didn't have design build at that time. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, it's, it's a, it's a different type of education. Yeah. And that had to be a benefit of taking those years off when you were a little bit older and kind of knew what you were looking for. Right. It, it seems like so many people get into, especially yeah. undergrad yeah. architecture school and, and not really know what they are looking for or what, what to look for. Um, we're not even really realizing what the different, how different these programs mm -hmm, are. Mm -hmm. I think about that a lot, like talking to, um, younger people just giving advice. Like I had no idea when I was an undergrad, like really what the difference was between doing a five year versus a four plus two, or, you know, there's so many different ways to go about this. And you don't realize that when you're 17, 18 years old. No. And it has such a big impact on your, your career, especially your early your career. career. Yeah. yeah. Um, Absolutely. But cool. So you, you did that program then it's like, what, what, what did that propel you to afterwards? You know, what were you looking, what were you looking for off of that kind of high of the design build and where'd you land? You know, in my, um, in my third year at UW, I did an independent studio where I got to choose my studio project. I got to choose my professors I was going to work with. And, um, Hmm. I chose to design a house for my dad hmm. and I did and it got built and wow. it got published like that. As I was graduating, it was published in dwell magazine. Hmm. So I was like, this feels pretty good. This is, I'm, not, I'm onto something, you know, I'm yeah. on the right track. So I definitely wanted to, um, start working for, um, a residential, firm. And for some reason I had it in my head that I was going to go work for, um, for Noah Hartman. There were a small residential practice in Berkeley, hmm. California. And I was so sure of myself. I was so, um, just kind of wide eyed and confident that I, I literally didn't even have a, I didn't have an interview. I didn't even have a phone call with them. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to move to Berkeley and work for, for Noah Hartman. So I, Moved to Berkeley. Uh, Renault and Hartman were not hiring. <laughs> so that didn't work out. Um, but I did end up working for a great office um, um, in Sausalito. Hmm. That was my first job right out of school. Um, and I say great as in they were very successful and they were doing beautiful work. Um but my intern, the internship itself um, was not what I was imagining. I felt totally disillusioned about what it meant to be an architect working in an office. Um, confused, disappointed, not what I was expecting. Um, you know, it was a, a traditional kind of 
top-down hierarchy principles up on the we were we were in this boathouse on the Sausalito on the water in Sausalito. It had two levels with a basement. The principals were up on the top level, the associate principals below, and then the interns were all in this like wet, moldy, dank, dark basement. It was a literal and pyramid. Yeah, it was <laughs> and, and, and literally like never I don't I don't think I ever talked to the principals hmm. or much I'm, I may have seen them a few times, but no interaction. Um it just wasn't what I was expecting. It was, you know, it was disappointing. You had a very different experience of architecture, right? You you had those three invigorating years and then you, you yeah. get your very first, well, your and first like, like three projects built and, uh, and then, yeah. And like, this is what it's like working in an <laughs> office. It sucks. Yeah. So, yeah. So then my, uh, we were there for my husband and I, uh, we moved there together. He was uh, writing. He's, he was a writer. Mm -hmm. He was writing for Associated Press in San Francisco. And he was approached to write a travel guidebook for the country of Peru. Yeah. By this company called Moon Handbooks. I don't know if you know, I mean... Not many people read the actual like physical travel guidebooks anymore, but it's a lot like Lonely Planet, yeah. you know. It's called Moon, and um, they approached him to write this book on the country of Peru. And his first thought was, "Well, Renee's never going to go for this." You know, she literally just got her first job ever in architecture. Um, she's been there less than eight months. I think it was, she's never going to go for this. So he asked me in this kind of like, what do you think? You know, I got this opportunity today. I'm not thinking about it too seriously. Describe to me this opportunity. I was like, when are we leaving? Let's go. Get me out of this I'm, basement. Yeah. I'm in. <laughs> I'm in. Wow. So, yeah. We, um, that that internship didn't last very long so we left for peru and we spent a year driving around peru in a borrowed jeep writing this guidebook and that was that was definitely life-changing and in the end kind of career changing as well what what does that look like like I always wonder who writes guidebooks, right? I mean, do you, sure. you, you go down and you kind of have to know what you're doing and it's just talking with people and just experiencing and, and writing what that's, such that's a, a great question. So, well, they asked him to do it because he had, he had lived in South America for many years. He'd lived in Chile and he had lived in Peru. He had worked in Peru. He had written, um, He'd worked as a journalist, so he was a great fit to do this, um, perfectly fluent in Spanish and very adventurous, mm. very extroverted. You need to be those things. Yeah. You need to be very adventurous. You need to be light on your feet and you need to be very extroverted and inquisitive. Mm. And it was, it was like, it was like writing. I mean, we just, yeah. And we were hired as a team you know, the two of us, um, 
but he really took leadership on that project because I am not particularly extroverted. I was not fluent in Spanish. I had never lived in South America and I wasn't a writer. Like I, I didn't fit the job description at all, but um, they hired us as a team. So we did it together. It was, it was amazing. Absolutely amazing. Peru is amazing. Now what that drew, drew told me to ask you about some story about being smuggled smuggled out of the back of something in a in the back of a jeep was that was that this trip yes that was this trip i can't believe the yes oh man so okay so it was a nice so, trip but at one point you had to get smuggled out of somewhere it was it was an adventurous trip um yes so it, that was at the very beginning of this year-long road trip in a borrowed Jeep that broke down all the time. Um, but this was at the beginning when the Jeep was doing pretty well. So essentially, you know, you drive, literally drive around to every nook and cranny of the country and you're, you're writing on, in a way it's encyclopedic. You have to write on the restaurants and the hotels and the tourist sites, but it's also, there, there's a lot especially with the moon handbooks guides, there's a lot of texts on culture and history. Mm. And um, so it's uh, such a cool project. But so at the very beginning of this year long experience adventure, um, we are driving up the North coast of Peru on the Pan American highway. And we had just spent probably our first two to three weeks doing Lima, which was probably the hardest section of the entire book mm. is to write about Lima. Lima is a huge city. It's very chaotic. Um, it was very hot when we were there. It was stressful way to start. We didn't start slow. Like we started with the hardest part. And so our idea was to next drive up um, north along the coastal highway um, to this beach town where we were, we were going to just stay put for at least five days to write up the Lima chapter. Because before that, we're literally moving every day. Like you don't get to stay anywhere very long. You're constantly moving um, to a new place every one or two days. Hmm. And so on our drive up north to the beach towns, um, the agricultural community decides to go on strike. They were protesting something or other. Um, I can't remember, but this happens a lot in Peru. And I mean, the the there's tourism strikes, there's education strike. Everyone strikes all the time. And what a strike looks like in Peru is roadblocks. They just there's only one there's only one way to go north. You've got ocean on your left, mountains on your right. And so you go up the Pan American highway and that's it. So if the road is blocked, like commerce stops, everything stops. So it's easy. Um, so our friend, so we hit our first roadblock, right? And the first roadblock was a bunch of little kids hmm. with like, laying sticks over the road and asking for bribe, asking for pesos, hmm. you know, a small, a small bribe. So, you know, you pay the little kids 
their their fee, their bribe, and they move the sticks and you you keep driving. So we're like, cool, okay, this is this isn't this isn't too bad. Like we can handle this. We'll keep going. You know, we could have turned around at that point, but we didn't. So we keep going. About an hour later, we hit the second roadblock. Second roadblock is a bunch of teenage kids mm. laying logs across the road. Harder to get through, bigger bribe, asking for more money, a little, a little more nerve wracking. Um, we pay the bribe, they move the logs. We could have turned around, but we didn't. So we keep going. And at this point, we were like dodging roadblocks and trying to figure out other ways to keep going north. And at this point, we're driving on a uh, like a like a, um, a a causeway with a or a ditch with a canal on our right and a drop off a a, a, a drop off to our left. So there's no turning. There's no going back at this point. Literally, um, it's getting dark. Um, and like at that point, our decision, you know, we're only going forward. And the third roadblock we hit, it's, it's really getting dark at this point is grown men in ski masks mm. with machetes. Mm. No more, no more sticks, no more logs across the road. Like this is real deal. So and they're asking for real money at this point, not just not just um, a couple pesos. <laughs> so Ross is actually starting to get nervous, and Ross doesn't get nervous very easily. He tells me to hide in the back of the Jeep under a blanket. So, of course, in the panic of the moment, I'm like, okay, I guess that's what we're doing. And he starts... He pulls up to these guys and he, you know, his Spanish is, he can, he can speak Peruvian slang mm. Spanish. Like his Spanish is wow. good. So he starts shooting the shit with these guys and tells them that he's a journalist and he is writing a story about the strike. And he just wants to interview him, ask him a few questions. So they get into this conversation um, back and forth. He's, you know, asking about, you know, the pesticides and, you know, what they're fighting and, you know, why are they so angry with the government and, you know, getting them going. And they eventually agree on a bribe. And Ross realizes that he only has one bill left. Uh -huh. He's got one bill left. And knowing that there's probably another strike, another roadblock ahead. Yeah. He asks these guys, these guys, meanwhile, <laughs> ski masks and machetes, he asks these guys if they can make change <laughs> <laughs> for his, for their bribe. Can you make change? <laughs> so, well, the, the, and you're, the, and you're hearing all this like underneath a blanket and try, trying, trying to slip a bill underneath the, yeah. Having a heart attack, <laughs> having a heart attack. And the guy goes behind the Jeep and bends down into the, um, like the light of the taillights of the car. Cause it's really dark now. And I thought he was letting the air, I thought he was going to mm. let the air out of our tires. Mm. Like I, I thought 
we're done. Like, this is it. And so I whisper that to Ross. I'm like, I think he's letting the air out of the tires. He's like, no, he's just making change for the bribe. Uh, He was, he came back, he gave him change and they let us go. Uh, yeah. So that that's, that's that made that's a good the, entry for the guidebook. Yeah, yeah, a whole chapter yeah. on making sure you have enough change. <laughs> yeah, have hidden change. Have hidden change. <laughs> There's a lot of strikes. Wow, yeah. that's awesome. So it's like, how do you how do you come back from that? So you do what a year in, in doing that, and then you then you're it was all uphill from there. Yeah, that was, that was the most stressful. Well, there were some other stressful, stressful moments, but it was all uphill from there for the most part. But, but I'm saying like, see, so you have all this adventures and, and it's time to leave Peru. And so then what do you yeah. decide next? And you had the, you had the bad experience in architecture right before that. And so what's your mindset then? No, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And it, it I think it was, I think actually looking back, um, that was a, a very important break to take in this whole kind of um, adventure of architecture. You know, that was an important creative break to take that moment and really think about what I wanted to do. You know, you were inclined to graduate, take the first job we can find and just go on a track, you know? Mm-hmm. And that year, looking back, was really important to kind of take a pause and say, okay, what do I want to do with what I've just, you know, I I ended up up at UW for three and a half years. What do I want to do with everything that I have learned in those three and a half years? So I knew, I, I figured it out, you know, that, that, that vision formed during that year of driving around Peru in a Jeep. And that vision was, I want to go back to Colorado and I want to bring to Colorado the regionalism that I saw in the Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. I want to create authentic architecture that belongs to Colorado. The way I saw architects creating architecture that was so deeply rooted in the Pacific Northwest that I didn't necessarily see yet in the Rocky Mountain West. Like my vision of architecture in the Rocky Mountain West was large, overwrought, you know, lodges, over-designed, not sensitive to place in the way that I thought, um, in in a way in a way that I, you know, thought could be. So I was pretty intentional um, about what I did from that from Peru forward. Everything I did was pretty intentional. So you came back to Denver, and then what was the first step of that that sort of plan or path? Then the very first step was um, getting the internship that I had originally wanted and needed. And that was the dream internship I got at Semple Brown. Mm. That that was night and day from what I had experienced in um, Sausalito. And 
by that, I mean, Sarah and Rusty were absolutely approachable. They had a totally different business model of, of not hierarchical at all, literally and figuratively, like literally we are all in an open studio with no, you know, we're all just in the same room. Um, so you, as an intern, you're learning from the principals, you're learning from the associate principals, you're learning from the quality control guy, you're learning from the accountant, you're learning from the interiors department. Like you got an eye into every aspect of the business as an intern at Semple Brown, which is so valuable. And, you know, they just had a philosophy of like, you know, they threw you off the deep end in, in the best way possible. Like very early on, you are running projects, going to building sites, you know, you know, doing things that you may not, you definitely don't feel ready to do, but you just learn on the job that way. And there's no, there was no like cad monkeys in the corner, mm. you know, it was just an invaluable internship. So that, and I knew I needed that. Um, and that was, gosh, three years. And then I knew at that point, I knew um, I had, you know, certainly not ready, but I had at least a basis to begin thinking about what I wanted to do on my own. Yeah. And so did you, were you attracted to Simple Brown also for, I mean, of course, probably for their design approach as well. I mean, were they getting close to what you felt like that, that regionalism could be for Colorado? Or? Yeah. I saw them as placemakers, mm -hmm. you know, I saw every project they did as creating a sense of place. Um, and they were, you know, all over the place as far as scale. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, from residential to the Ellie Hawkins Opera House, you know, but they were placemakers. Absolutely. And I didn't mean to say that I didn't see um, architecture with a sense of place in Colorado at all, um, because they were certainly doing that and have been for so many years. Um, yeah, no, I was very attracted to their office for that reason. Yeah. And so I'm always interested in that, in that sort of moment or that however long it takes when you, when you decide to leave your firm and start your own firm. Uh, and so what, what, what did that look like? And, um, there's kind of been a, a theme on here of like, how many days did it take to get your first project? Uh, I think, I think the winner is like 250 right now, but, uh, <laughs> what did that look like? Um, you know, I left, um, after about three years and it was during the recession and they needed to let people go. They had to let a lot of people mm. go. That was really hard for them at that time. And, um, I kind of volunteered to go in a way. It just felt like the right, the right time. Yeah. Um, I also, I had just had two little babies mm. and, it felt, um, it felt like, um, it felt like a lot at that moment. Um, 
So I think, I think having those, those two children was part of it, but it was also the recession and the vibe at the office, you know, they, the vibe at the office was like, in a way I kind of felt like I'm probably going to get let go eventually. Mm-hmm. Like, it, I mean, they had to let a lot of people go yeah. and I was, you know, I was, I was probably one of the um, least experienced people there at the time. So it was a combination of those things. Um, but, you know, shortly after that, um, very shortly after that, I feel it's kind of a blur. It feels like this was all happening at the same time. But um, ironically, it was a huge forest fire mm. that kind of launched my sole practitioner <laughs> idea. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've heard a little bit about this. So tell, tell me more what happened. So this was, I think it was just the summer after... This must have been the summer after I left Semple Brown. It was late. It was the summer of 2010. Hmm. Um, and there was a massive forest fire in Boulder called the Four Mile Fire. Um, which happened over Labor Day weekend. And my family and I were camping. Um, with Drew Harrison? We were, we were yeah. camping with Drew and Leela. Yeah. Um, we were camping in the Holy Cross Wilderness, and it was probably one of the windiest camping experiences um, any of us had mm. ever experienced. And we were definitely smelling smoke. And by the time we drove out um, on Labor Day morning, um, it was in the news that there was a massive forest fire in Boulder that started in Four Mile Canyon and ended up burning 6,000 acres and burned 169 homes, including Ross and I's cabin Mm. that we had bought several years earlier up in the mountains above Boulder. Um, So yeah, that was game changing because we were, you know, obviously pretty freaked out and just couldn't believe what had just happened, but it took probably a week to, it took probably a week for them to confirm that our cabin had actually burned. Mm. Um, And when you say cabin, do you mean it's like a second home or it was your primary home? No, it was, no, no, no. We were living in Denver in city park West and we had just bought this little old cabin um, that we were renting out to a CU student. Hmm. Um, so we were not living there at the time we were living in Denver, um, and just had this little old cabin, um, that we were, that somebody else was living in. He was a music student at CU. Um, so yeah, we found out about a week later that our property, not only had it burned, but it was literally the epicenter of the fire zone. Mm. Um, so it was really burned, like every single tree on the property gone. 
everything. The the house basically vaporized. Wow. Just the hottest fire you could ever imagine. Um, about a week after they officially confirmed whose homes were lost and whose were not, um, they started allowing people back in to see their properties. And uh, so we came up to see our property and it, I mean, it, it, it's hard to even put into words what you see after a fire like that. I mean, it's, it, it looks like the moon. It's just ash. Mm -hmm. It's just ash and skeletal remnants, black skeletal remnants of trees. Everything completely gone. Not, not, a, not even a clue that a cabin was ever there. Really, not, not even like yeah. strange little things. I mean, my, my, my in-laws' house burned down in, in the Black Forest fire, and it was the weirdest things that would stay. Like a, a, a mug would be perfectly fine, but then the whole dishwasher would melt, or like you know. But yours, this was just totally everything gone. Yeah, yeah. like vaporized. Wow. I mean, there are other properties where, like you say, like odd things. Like there were definitely like masonry chimneys mm. were still there. But our our little cabin was so old and <laughs> decrepit; it was just a tinderbox that was gone in probably minutes. Um, there was no masonry, but um, yeah, I mean, there were some there were some odd things that we found under the ashes eventually. Um, but yeah, so that was crazy. Um, but you know, we, we, we kept going back and back and just as soon as I suppose we got over our initial shock, um, we started having like friends come and join us as work crews. And we were trying to you know, chip these old dead trees and rake up all this hydrophobic soil. And we're trying to, you know, just, I don't know, find some glimmer of hope in all this. And as we were processing and trying to figure out what we were going to do, um, I mean, the immediate reaction is just, you know, we've just lost everything. You just, you have no choice but to walk away from this. Mm -hmm. There's nothing to be done. Um, but, you know, after a couple months of massive amounts of work and cleanup, you start seeing things, you know, like nature has this unbelievable capacity to regenerate. Mm. And I remember one day coming back in a sea of ashes, one little green piece of growth. Mm. And I remember that moment, like, it, it's, there's hope, mm. you know there's, there's hope here. Like this, this is not, we've not lost everything. We have just been given a very, very, very blank slate, <laughs> you know, yeah. literally a very and figuratively. Black canvas, a yeah. very blank <laughs> canvas. And after months of months of haggling with the insurance companies, um, which everyone in the community did had so much trouble with the insurance companies after that fire, uh, we were eventually um, um, given a, a some insurance money that allowed us to start thinking. Well, maybe maybe we can do something with mm. this. You know, maybe there is hope here. 
And, you know, you, the, the fire changed everything physically. Like, yes, it was a, a lunar, you know, it was just an expanse of ashes. It looked like you were on the moon, but there were new rock outcroppings suddenly that I'd never seen before. Mm. There was suddenly a view out to Denver hmm. that didn't exist before through the trees. There was a view to the east out to the Boulder Reservoir that before did not exist through the trees. And it was just it was just a totally different landscape. And it started making me think of, wow, this is what it looked like at the turn of the century. Hmm. You know, where because it, the fire didn't burn the whole canyon. It was, you know, here and there. So there were, were still pockets of trees. It was just much more spread out, much more park-like, like it was 100 years ago when fires naturally were let to, left to burn. You know, they didn't control these situations 100 years ago. The fires were just left to burn, and that's more or less what it looked like. So it got me thinking, you know, like this is this is an opportunity to think about what this landscape used to be like and what types of structures used to exist in that landscape. And I I started designing um a house for the pro- for the property. People thought I was crazy, you know. Um but yeah, we sold our house in Denver and moved to a rental nearby the property and I um, started taking my licensing exams. I started designing this house. I ended up um, being 50% contractor on the house to, you know, to save money. It was the recession. So it was a really inexpensive time Mm, to build. Interesting. I still can't, you know, believe how, Expensive it is to build today versus 10 years ago um, during that time. It was, you know, looking back, I think I, I think I really took advantage of, of those years, not only of the, of the fire, but the recession, which was the time during all of this was happening. Hmm. And yeah, and and then so that and that house, I mean, had to be such a springboard. I mean, it's such a, I, I can't count the amount of time, amount of uh, precedent boards I've put that house on. I think uh, for for clients and things, it's such a beautiful project, uh, and to have that control over it, right, and really sort of be able to determine from the beginning, this is what I'm about, right? Uh, it really was, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was an opportunity to. Um, put my voice out there, you Mm -hmm. know, put out there what I felt strongly about what I believed in quieting all the noise and the distractions. And, uh, it was just me with this blank canvas and, you know, really, you know, no kind of, um, I gave myself the freedom of time, you know, I was taking my exams. Mm -hmm. So I was, um, feeling like I was making progress and moving forward. And I didn't give myself these like really intense, you know, deadlines. So I had the freedom of, of, of not having that um, pressure, you know? Um, But it was, it was a real opportunity just to kind of have my voice out there. Yeah. It was, and it was a springboard that project got a ton of press and, 
several awards and it just, it, it was a, it was an opportunity to start from the beginning, kind of what I wanted to say, as opposed to, um, you know, being told what to do mm -hmm. and how to do it, just, you know, having a, having, having confidence in, in my own voice, you know? Yeah. I mean, that seems like such a difficult thing when, when you start a firm of, yeah, you want to, you want to try to a develop your voice and then B get it out into the world, but then C you have to eat and you have to take every project that yeah. comes on and you hope yeah. you don't get stuck in some path that you don't want to. And that's the only thing you can get. But, uh, yeah. this, yeah, this tragedy of the fire, you know, seemed to set you on such a good pace where you can really see that project as this, this genesis of, of what you do. And now it's, it's like, if those people, if those people want the, that kind of a project, they, they come to you and it seems like, at least from your website, every project, you're just knocking it out like that, you know, that, that, the, the great, uh, design, you know, um, would you remember, have you ever heard that quote from, I love this quote. It's, it's Glenn Merkitt's, um, says it as his father said to him, you start your, start your career out the way you want to see it finish. Hmm. hmm. You know, yeah. as I love that. Yeah. And, and I think that's really important in our short time that we have to not waste time doing work that you're not proud of. Um, and yes, you have to eat and you got to pay the bills, but if you make too many compromises, that's going to represent your next client, right? Mm -hmm. Like the quality of the first thing you put out there is going to represent the quality of your next client. Yeah. So, um, it's, it's tricky. It's tricky. Um, that's such a, you, yeah, it's such a powerful thing because it's, it's, you know, I see such a kind of, you know, bravery in your, in your path. And, and, and I like to think I kind of took a, a weird path as well in that way, but where you're, you know, a lot of people will say, okay, no, you, you have to get an internship, then you have to work here for five years and you can't change jobs or else that looks bad on your resume or, and it's like, no, screw that. I'm going to do what I'm, I'm passionate about and find, find this out. And, and there's a way, right. Um, that seems there's like, no a, one way. yeah, yeah. Um, and it's once you get, oh, it's kind of getting over that fear as well, right. Of just the, the kind of normal the, the supposed path. Right. Uh, and well, you know, I think it's more than naivete. Mm. Like the more naive you are, the braver you can be. <laughs> it's almost like the less, you know, mm. the less, you know, you, people always say like, how do you know when you're ready to go out on your own? Well, you're never <laughs> going to be ready. Yeah. Right. And if you know too much, then you're really never going to be ready. If you're really aware of everything that you don't know, <sighs> which is a lot and will always be a lot in architecture. It's almost like, you know, just do it. And, and, and because later on you're going to build fear because now you realize how much you don't know, So it's better to do it before you get there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I started, we started our firm during the recession right after graduation in 09 and had a firm for two years and then started working for people. And it's, so it was like a reverse thing where, 
yeah, I was very, I was very confident. And the more, the more I go along, I'm less confident and yeah, m- more scared, but yeah. uh, switching yeah. back and forth between that. So, uh, yeah. so you did, so you did that house. Uh, and then what, what was next? You know, just some great projects around Boulder for awesome people. Um, I think the very next project was a remodel for the Guthkies, this really awesome family in town, did a remodel of their house. Um, But on a, you know, looking at the larger picture, what was next was... um, um, getting my license mm. during that time. Um, I, oh, oh, I remember what the very first project I got in Boulder after that was a client who, um, fired me because there was another architect who told him I wasn't licensed. Oh, <laughs> Yeah. Do you, do you want to yeah. say that architect's name on here? We can uh, get yeah. some revenge. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. I'm, I'm gonna. Yeah. <laughs> but, but he was right. I wasn't licensed, mm. and I didn't think that mattered. Um, and anyways, so that was um, that really lit a fire under me to get those exams done. Mm. Because I didn't want anyone telling me that I was not an architect. Yeah. You know, that's what he was essentially saying. He's like, "You're not an architect." It's like, so that lit a fire under me, and I, um, I got those licensing exams done. That was the first thing I did after, um, after I finished this, that that first project. Hmm. So, so tell me about your your kind of. And it goes back to, you, you know, your answer to who you are, but um, of your business model of of just kind of staying a one person shop. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was telling a group at work that I was interviewing you and it, I felt like three or four people all said, oh, yeah, I applied to her when I when I got here, I applied to her. And it's like, I think I think she only has I don't think she has any employees. So is that is that a pretty pretty conscious decision. I mean, obviously, and, and, uh, and just the idea of doing, doing the, doing houses very well and, and being able to do a few of them. I mean, it's super conscious. And, um, I think it just, it also has a lot to do with my personality, you know, like that the experience of my first project really clarified like how I work best. Mm. And, um, I mean, just practically, I've always known that if I start hiring people, then I'm going to have to start managing people. And it's not really what I want to be doing with my time. I really just want to be designing. And I, I, I really feel passionate about, um, keeping things simple, you know, um, just in life in general, um, life and work. Mm. Um, I just, I really like the simplicity of, um, being able to take fewer projects because I don't have a big overhead. Actually, I have zero overhead. (laughs) Um, 
and I'm, I've never been interested in quantity. Um, you know, I'm able to pay the bills and, um, make a decent living with, I do about three, I have about three projects going on at the same hmm. time, typically in different phases, but no more than that. And that's sufficient for me yeah, nice. to make a living. Um, and I don't, I, I don't have any, um, dreams of, um, doing more than that at one time. Um, so yeah, it's very deliberate. Mm. Sounds really nice. Again, you just, you just know what you want and yeah, you, you, yeah. I like the simplicity of it. I, um, I like not having an external office. I really like, um, um, working where I live. I know. And that's, again, that's a personality thing. There's so many people who are like, you're crazy. I can never do that, but I love it. Um, I think, um, you know, people always comment about like, well, but don't you need, you know, work and life separated and, just really don't yeah. like it's it's just my thing it's all it's it's all one thing you know yeah i like that i, uh, I agree with that <laughs> but for more than anything it's 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 the simplicity of it and um um being able to pick and choose projects is really important to me and i also know that if i grew and had employees i'd have to have more projects and then you you know, often do have to take projects. Maybe you don't really want to take, but you've got to feed this mouth and that mouth. So mm -hmm. here you are with projects that you're not super proud of. Yeah. You know, I just, I want to be proud of everything that I do. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So, so you can't, you came to Colorado with that idea of, of really developing this, the, your idea of regionalism for the place. Right. Um, do you think you think you've achieved that to your to your satisfaction? Are you, are you keep going on? Uh, what what project kind of nailed it um, the best? Or never. It's like this constant um, study. It's this constant search, and every project is like an experiment in a way, a laboratory to figure out what's working and what's not working that informs the next one. And I don't imagine I'll ever have it, you know, completely nailed or figured out. Um, but I just love learning. I mean, I'm, I'm the first to admit when something's not working and I get excited about mm. it in a way, because I know I get excited that I can fix that in the next one. Mm. You know, I can do that better. Um, and so yeah, no, just it'll, it'll, it'll be a lifelong pursuit for sure. <laughs> nice. What's, what's, uh, what's do good architecture? My husband, what my husband does, his name is Ross. Um, he takes high school age students overseas to do service work in underserved communities. Hmm. And, um, he and I collaborated on a project a while back um, in Africa in a town of the town of Aloika outside of Kenya. Um, and he brought his students 
and I designed a project that we all built together. Um, and it was for a school for girls who had nowhere to take their meals. They were just eating their meals in the dirt under the tree in the shade. Um, their only structures for at their school were these really um, hot metal shacks with like no ventilation. Um, so it was just architecturally very uncomfortable. Mm. So we decided we were going to design a building um, where they could um, eat their meals during the day, during the school day um, that would provide shade and shelter and hopefully um, help with the overwhelming heat that they dealt with. So we um, designed a very simple structure, but we decided it needed to be of a technique that these villagers could continue on doing after we left. Mm. And we wanted to get them to stop building with metal because it was just so hot inside these structures. So we bought and donated to them a compressed earth block press. Mm. And uh, we designed the building um, to utilize the compressed earth block press. And we taught them how to use it. We learned how to use it along, you know, we all learned how to use it together. And you basically just gathered sand and clay and mixed it with a little Portland cement to make these blocks mm. uh, right from the site. Um, and, um, you know, it was pretty successful. It was, of course, these projects are always harder than you think. Um, but I would say it was successful in that the compressed earth block construction really worked. We had a lot more trouble with the roof. Um, just even getting materials there was a massive challenge. Um, but I would say the wall portion of the building was very successful. Um, and then the, the, we left the earth block press behind and they did continue to use it um, to build other buildings for the, for the school. And how, how long were you there? Um, gosh, that was like three weeks. Three weeks. It was okay. very, it was quick. It, it was um, another thing like your had, design build uh, yeah, experience all over again and from yeah, school. Totally. Yeah. But there, but my Ross is, his organization is called the world leadership school World leadership school hmm. brought, it was like 20 plus students. So we had a, you know, a huge construction labor, um, force there. So the building went up quick. Um, and we, we had also had people locally helping us. So, it, I mean, we did a lot in three weeks. Hmm. Um, and then they, they tried to finish the roof after we had left. So, wow. yeah, that was, that was an amazing experience. And, um, I hope to do more projects like that in the future for sure. Yeah. Another benefit of I guess having your own company where you can kind of, kind of take those trips, but I'm sure you're always busy as well, but. No. Yeah, absolutely. You can, you know, forge your own path when you don't, you know, when you run your own, run your own shop. Yeah. Well, cool. You know, I, I, 
I always thought you were kind of mysterious. I uh, just see this great work and uh, didn't know much about you. And I was so glad that you agreed to come on here and uh, appreciate talking and hearing these great stories. So thanks for coming on. Thanks, man. That's awesome. I really appreciate you having me. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this week's show. You can visit architecting.com. That's architect-ing.com to see images from this week's guest. And please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a great week and keep connecting. Just before this, just a few minutes ago, I got a message from from Drew Harrison uh, giving me a bunch of good questions to ask you. (laughs) No! This is Sarah Hubbard, host of You and Me Kid, a podcast about starting and raising a family on your own. We just launched season two, and I'm speaking with single moms, those still considering, and experts in relevant fields to give you a real sense of what the day-to-day experience of solo parenting looks and feels like. Plus, this season, I've partnered with California Cryobank, the number one sperm bank in the U.S. So wherever you are in the process, this podcast provides some support, humor, and helpful information. Listen to You and Me Kid wherever you get your podcasts.